0: Well, friends, the word meekness is, is an interesting word. It often conjures up to us someone who is slinking around, cowering in fear and timidity and, and weakness. Someone who is um, at, uh, at the, the mercy of someone else who has a stronger mind, a stronger will or a stronger body. Oftentimes we associate meekness with weakness, but nothing could be further from the truth. Meekness is a biblical word, it's a biblical concept, and it begins with an attitude or a disposition toward God. The Greek scholar Richard Trent describes meekness, the biblical meekness, this way. He says, it's the inward temper of the spirit by which one accepts God's dealings with us as good, and therefore without disputing or resisting. Meekness is an attitude of humble submission to the will of God in all things, And then it carries over to our relationships with other people. Sometimes we we suffer ill treatment and injustices and wrongs done to us by others. The meek soul receives that in submission to God, knowing that God is intending all things for their good. That's what meekness is. Such meekness is really a display not of weakness, but of great power, great inward spiritual power. Meekness is seen in the Old Testament in David. When David was being driven out of the city by his son, and there was a man, Shimei, who was running along the ridge, cursing David and throwing stones at him. And David's general, Joab, said, you want me to go over and just dispatch him, cut off his head? And David, in meekness, said, no, the Lord has told him. The Lord has appointed him. This is a season for me to be humbled and I'm going to accept it from the Lord. That was meekness. But an even greater meekness is seen in the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus comes to give himself into the control of his enemies, to be submitted to their torture and death at their hands, we see a grand expression of meekness, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn again in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and our text for this morning is verses 43 to 50 in Mark 14. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Jesus, there in the garden, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures, and they all fled, all left him and fled. In this scene, there are a number of actors, and we want to consider each one of these actors playing a role in this particular scenario. And the first one we look to is what I'm calling the hypocritical betrayer, Judas. As this mob bursts upon Jesus and his disciples as they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas is clearly the leader of the pack. The others are accompanying him. And concerning Judas here, I want to note a few things. First of all, there was an urgency to Judas's action. John 13 tells us that in the upper room, Jesus had indicated that someone, one of the 12, would betray him. Judas might have suspected that maybe Jesus was aware of what he was going to do. Maybe Jesus would have had time to either flee or or gather his his friends to defend him. And so Judas needed to act quickly. There was an urgency to his action. He needed to uh, consult with the Jewish leaders who had paid him 30 uh, pieces of silver to betray Jesus. He needed to marshal a force. To come to arrest Jesus, he had to get permission from the Roman authorities. And so there was a, a sense of urgency to Judas's action. He did not want his plan to backfire. <clears throat> but the next thing we want to see about Judas, and we've seen it before, is the degeneracy of Judas's heart. Not without reason does Mark identify Judas back in chapter 14, verse 10, using the words one of the twelve. And when Jesus says that someone will betray him in 1420, he says it's one of the 12. And here Judas is referred to as one of the 12. The fact that Jesus is referred to as one of the 12 points to the great wickedness and heinousness of what he is about to do. One of the 12 calls to mind that Judas was one of the 12 intimate followers of Jesus And he had so many privileges. You think of the astounding words that he had heard from the mouth of Jesus. Words of truth. Words of power. You think of the amazing deeds that he had seen Jesus perform. Again, powerful, miraculous words. And yet done from a heart of kindness and compassion and mercy. You think of the sinless humanity of Jesus that Judas had witnessed. And even there in the, gar- in the uh, upper room where Jesus announces someone's going to betray him, Judas had a last-minute opportunity to reflect upon what he was doing and to reverse his course, but he did not. When you think about Judas, you think of how many times he had to suppress the truth, how hard his conscience had to work to repel all the arrows of conviction that would have come to him from seeing and hearing and living with the Lord of glory how much it would have taken for him to maintain that facade of faith and love and trust in Jesus. And so I say, what degeneracy characterized the heart of Judas? And the word degeneracy means he got worse. To degenerate means you're getting worse. You're deteriorating. You're declining. And you see, there's a principle here that whenever we receive light and truth, we're never the same. You're either going to receive truth and become better for it, or you're going to reject light and become worse for it. And for three years, Judas was receiving the light of truth from Christ, from his words, from his deeds, and he kept repressing it and suppressing it and repelling that. Judas didn't get to where he was overnight. He degenerated by continuing to suppress the truth that was coming at him. And even with an 11th hour opportunity to repent, he did not do it. The lesson for us, brothers and sisters, is that we need to make sure that we are responding rightly to light that we receive. There's a proverb that says, buy the truth and sell it not. We're constantly growing in the truth, aren't we? Do you know all the truth you're ever going to know? No, as a Christian, we're learning more truth as you read the Bible in your personal devotions. Hopefully, as the word is preached to you and taught to you, we're learning new truths all the time. What do we do with that truth? What we do with that truth is very crucial. If we receive that light, we process it and say, well, that's a new truth. In fact, it's contrary to what I've always believed, but I'm going to search the scriptures to see if it's true. When we respond to that light positively, we grow in the truth. We go as the scripture, we grow in the scripture says as from light to light and from faith to faith. And as the proverb says, our path gets brighter and brighter. But if you resist and reject the truth, your path will get darker and darker. Let's learn a lesson from Judas. Let's respond well to new truth. Let's buy the truth as the proverb says and sell it not. But then finally, concerning Judas, note the hypocrisy of Judas's manner. And we've seen it before. Judas was a hypocrite. He is perhaps the supreme hypocrite of all time. And you know what hypocrisy is. The very word means a play actor. In a Greek play, the person would be one who has a big mask, and the mask would either have a smiley face or perhaps a big frown, But what you saw on the outside did not tell you what was going on on the inside, what was on the face of the actor that was behind the mask. And so a a hypocrite is a play actor, one who tries to project on the outside something that he or she is not on the inside. The psalmist says in Psalm 55, he has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Never were these words fulfilled more radically and vividly than in the case of Judas. In verse 44, he needs to give a signal to the men so that they might identify the person they're supposed to arrest. The Roman soldiers probably wouldn't have known Jesus and recognized him. Maybe the the temple police who were there could have recognized him. But then again, it was dim light, and um, they needed to know which one to arrest. It's a statement, in a sense, about Jesus' humanity as well. Jesus was an ordinary man. Judas didn't say, oh, by the way, he'll be the one who's eight feet tall, or he'll be the one with the, the halo around his head. Or he'll be the one glowing in in luminescence. No, Jesus was an ordinary man. And there needed to be some signal so that the soldiers could know who to arrest. What signal does he give? The one that I kiss. And so Judas comes up to Jesus and he calls him rabbi. A term of respect, although R.C. Sproul notes that when a disciple met a rabbi, the rabbi was the one who was supposed to speak first. It was disrespectful for the pupil to speak first. So it could be that Judas was violating that and showing some disrespect for Jesus and calling him rabbi. But then it goes on to say he kissed him. And, and the word used in the second sense has a prefix in front of it. It's an intensive. He, he kissed him tenderly. Maybe he kissed him repeatedly. Now Judas had played the hypocrite for three years. To the point where he had fooled the other disciples, right? They had even entrusted him with the bag. He was the treasurer. He fooled them all. But inwardly, he was a treacherous traitor. And now his long standing hypocrisy is crowned with one final epitomizing display of his play acting. He comes up and he kisses a sign of affection for one his soul hated Judas the hypocrite. What wretched hypocrisy. What do we learn from that? Well, the obvious lesson for us is it's a warning against hypocrisy, isn't it? Might I be speaking to someone here who is a play actor? You're trying to project on the outside something different than you are on the inside? If you are, I would call you away from that. David played the hypocrite for the better part of a year, when he refused to confess his sins of adultery and murder. And in his psalm of confession, Psalm 51, he says to God, God, you desire truth in the innermost being. You see, friend, if you're playing the hypocrite, what people think of you is not the most important thing. It is what God thinks of you, what God, in fact, knows about you. And he knows everything about you. Why be the hypocrite? Don't fool yourself by trying to impress other people. It is not before other people that you and I will stand one day in the judgment. It is before God. And so I would call you not to fool yourself by trying to fool other people and playing the role of the hypocrite. But I would call you before the God who desires truth in the innermost being, to be honest before God. And the best form of that honesty is to recognize that you are a sinner. You fall short of the glory of God. and You're under the wrath of a holy God. And to be honest about the fact that there is only one Savior, one way of forgiveness, one way to heaven, and that is Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners. And I would call you to honestly repent, believe in Jesus But Judas, as a hypocrite, is also instructive for us as a church. We don't want hypocrites in the church, do we? We shouldn't want to be a hypocrite, and we don't want hypocrites in the church. One of the safeguards we have, I think, following the Bible, is that we seek to baptize and receive into the church only those who have a credible, believable profession of having been saved and changed by Jesus. We call it Believer's Baptism. We want the church to be a a regenerate membership. Now, we have brothers and sisters whom we love, but they baptize babies. Do you know why they do that? They baptize babies, and those babies, as infants, become members of the church, and they're considered part of the new covenant because our brothers and sisters who hold that believe that the new covenant community is to parallel the old covenant community. In the old covenant community under Moses, there was the visible church made up of believers and unbelievers. And then there was the invisible church, the true believers. And our brothers and sisters who baptize babies believe that the new covenant community is to be parallel to that. That there's a visible church that's going to have believers and there's going to be some unbelievers. And then there's the invisible church of true believers. We don't believe that. We believe, no, the visible church is to be made up of those who are truly regenerate, converted, saved people. Now, is that going to be perfect? No, because we're fallible in our discernment. But that will prevent a lot of people coming into the church who are not truly regenerate. And so we try to hear their testimonies. And we we welcome those who are true brothers and sisters. That's why we have people give their testimony. And we affirm, yes, you're one of us. You're a sheep. You love Jesus like we do. Come on in. And it's a safeguard against hypocrisy in the church. Let me also say a word. With regard to hypocrisy, there's a danger in baptizing children too young. We want to make sure that those who come into the church, even if they're children, are showing clear evidence that they have really been changed by the gospel. That they're not just compliant, obedient well-mannered children who are affirming with their heads the doctrine of their parents, but that there's real evidence that there's new life being given to this young man or this young woman. If we rush children too quickly into baptism and church membership, and then later on they discover, you know, my heart is not really changed. I'm not really a new creation. I don't really love Jesus. I don't really love the Bible. Then there will be tremendous temptation to those children to play the hypocrite. Because mom and dad think I'm a Christian. Pastors think I'm a Christian. The church thinks I'm a Christian. And there's a temptation then to play the part when there's not the reality. And so we don't want to tempt our children that way. And so we just want to make sure, you parents, that when you put forth your children for baptism and church membership, that there's really good evidence that they become new creations in Christ. Baptism doesn't save. And you can say to your five and six-year-old or eight-year-old, you know what? You're trusting in Jesus. Praise God, son, daughter. Nobody ever went to hell trusting in Jesus. You just keep trusting Jesus. And at the appropriate time, we'll recommend and you recommend that you be put forward and go through the waters of baptism. But one other thing concerning hypocrisy, and this is the largest point by far, when we see Judas's hypocrisy, it helps us when we see professing believers, even professing leaders in the church, turn away from the gospel and apostatize and disown Christ. And haven't we seen that? I mean, Joshua Harris, Ravi Zacharias, men like Mark Driscoll, some who haven't disowned the faith, but they've been proven to be unworthy of the calling and and, and hypocrites in some ways, you know, the the Bill Hybels and the James McDonald's. We see this and the fact that Judas was a hypocrite should help us here. We are saddened when we see people turn away from the faith. How many of you live long enough that you've seen somebody close to you, somebody who's professed Christ turn away from the faith? A lot of you, right? It happens a lot and it will happen more. We should be saddened, but we should not be shocked And we should not be shaken in our faith. Look, if somebody could live for three years in the presence of the Lord of glory and prove to be a phony Christian, why can't someone be among us and end up being a phony professor? And so there are two extremes we need to avoid here. Avoid a cynicism. We don't want to be looking at each other, are you real? And and looking with a cynical eye at one another. No, but nor do we want to be naive And think that people who profess Christ, even leaders who have been greatly used of God, even in teaching the word, if they turn away, don't be naive and think, oh, that can't happen. The discerning eye realizes that all that glitters is not gold. But moving quickly now to the next actor in the scenario the combined captors of Jesus. If Judas was the head of this mob that arrested Jesus, he was not alone. There was a large body of men behind him. It is this mixed body of men I'm calling the combined captors of Jesus. Consider the diversity of the captors. Well, it says here in Mark that it was a crowd. And it says they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. But I'm going to dip into John's gospel for just a moment because John tells us who made up that arresting crowd. John says this in John 18, 3, Judas, then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. That crowd was comprised of Roman soldiers. The Roman cohort, a cohort was made up of of 600 soldiers. Now, that doesn't mean that all 600 were here. They were led by Achiliarch, who was a leader of a thousand men. And then there were the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. That would have been the temple police. What I'm saying here is that those who arrested Jesus were pagan Roman soldiers and there were Jewish temple police. Not only that, but Luke actually tells us in Luke twenty-two, fifty-two, 52, then Jesus said on this occasion to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him. There were even some members of the Sanhedrin in that crowd. The point is this, that the crowd that arrested, that arrested Jesus was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And the New Testament does not ignore the fact that it it was both Jews and Gentiles that were responsible for the death of Jesus. And biblically speaking, those are the two categories that comprise all of humanity. It's kind of like the Amish say, if you're not Amish, you're English, right? We're all English. If you're not Amish, you're English. Well, in biblical terms, if you weren't Jewish, you were Gentile, right? In Luke 23, 12, we read, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. Herod was a professing Jew, Pilate was a pagan Roman. They had been bitter enemies, but they were agreed in their animosity toward Jesus. In Acts 2, and 23, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, Men of Israel, Jesus the Nazarene, you nailed to a cross. You, men of Israel, nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men, because only the Romans had the power of capital punishment. The Jews were responsible for killing Jesus, and the Romans were responsible for killing Jesus. In Acts 4.27, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus, and they plotted his death from the beginning. And the Romans treated Jesus poorly. Pilate, the Roman governor, caved into the crowd. And though knowing that Jesus was innocent, he consigned him to die by crucifixion, The Roman soldiers mocked him and spit at him and treated him in a degrading way. So even here, the two classes of humanity were responsible for the arrest of Jesus. What about the expectancy of the captors? What what were they expecting? We don't know how many men were there. Some commentators say there were hundreds of men with swords and clubs, lanterns and torches that came to arrest Jesus. One man. What were they expecting? Well, whatever they were expecting, they didn't get what they were expecting. Never did they have a more compliant and willing prisoner than Jesus. And the 11 friends ran away. What were their expectations? Whatever it was, it didn't match reality. A couple of applications from this. The enemies of Jesus surely did not understand the nature of his kingdom, did they? They must have thought he was going to be uh, put up a fight. He was going to be an insurrectionist and they were in for a fight. That's why they were so heavily armed and there were so many of them. But friends, later on, Jesus would say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. The kingdom is not a kingdom that comes by physical force. It doesn't come by the sword. It doesn't come by political power. The kingdom that Jesus came to bring comes by the power of the gospel of grace that would regenerate sinners and bring in the kingdom. And then the fact that there were Jews and Gentiles who arrested Jesus points to the fact that sin is universal. Everyone is a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it also means that the whole world is eligible for salvation. And so Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's why we have a universal commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations because there's a universal sin problem. There's a universal solution in the gospel and there's a universal commission to go because God is going to take for himself a people to the ends of the earth to enter his kingdom. But there's a third party, third actor here. I'm calling him the deluded defender of Jesus. The identity and activity of this defender, as the soldiers move forward and they lay their hands on Jesus, we read in verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now Mark doesn't tell us who it was nor does Matthew or Luke. John, however, tells us who it was, and you all know it was Peter, right? It says in John that Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest slave and cut off his right ear. Typical of Peter, impetuous, impulsive, acting before he thought. But why doesn't Mark and the other synoptic gospels mention it? Mark actually was the, follower of Peter. Mark was writing in his gospel the information he got from Peter. Was it because Peter said, hey, look, that, that puts me in a bad light? Uh, no, Peter never tried to shield himself from shame. I mean, already in the gospel, he's contradicted Jesus twice, <laughs> right? The gospel writers aren't trying to put up a front and make themselves look good. It wasn't because of that. Commentators speculate that it was to protect Peter from Roman retribution, But John mentions Peter because perhaps by the time John wrote later on in the first century, Peter had already died. And it could be to protect Peter. Oh, you're the one from Roman retribution. We don't know. But anyway, it was Peter. Was it crazy? I mean, what was he thinking? You know, there are hundreds of guys with swords and clubs and, and Peter's one man. And he takes a whack at this high priest slave. What was he thinking? Was that crazy? Well, if you read the other Gospels, when they come to Jesus and they ask who he is and he identifies himself with, I am, it says they fell to the ground backwards. Wow, what a stunning statement. Something supernatural happened when Jesus said, I am the divine name. They literally fell backward to the ground. Maybe Peter saw that saw that, and he said, hey, maybe we can take these guys after all if Jesus is going to fight for us. And we should remember, too, that Peter was still in his bravado mode of self-confidence. He had not had that humbled yet. But anyway, um, he took a whack at the high priest. He, He was aiming for his head, no doubt. The guy dodged, and he cut off his ear by mistake. Now, Peter was not a soldier. He was a fisherman, so he missed. But Jesus put his ear back. Consider with Peter the deficient Christology of the Defender, Peter was no doubt motivated by love for his Lord. When he saw those rough Roman soldiers grab his Lord, you know, his instinct was anger and indignation. You're not going to do that to Jesus. And he stepped in. He loved Jesus. Despite his later betrayal, he loved his Lord. And he was well-intentioned. He was sincere. But sincerity sincerity doesn't make for truth, right? And how did Jesus respond? Jesus replaced the ear that was lopped off. And Jesus said, recorded in another gospel, stop. No more of this. Put your sword back into its place. Peter had a defective Christology. He still wasn't understanding the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Remember earlier, he said, no, Lord, you can't die. He still didn't get it. He still didn't understand that the kingdom Jesus came to bring was a spiritual kingdom. He was coming as a suffering, sin-bearing Messiah whose kingdom was non-political, non-geographical, he didn't yet get it. And the lesson for us is to remember what we know now. Peter did not know that the kingdom of God and his son is not advanced by carnal weapons. The demonic religion of Islam, they conquered by the sword. Believe in Allah or you'll die. What kind of conversion is that? The church is not to wield the carnal weapon of the sword. The state has been given the sword to enforce its authority, not the church. What are the weapons we've been given as the church to advance the kingdom of God? Well, essentially two or three we We're given the truth of God's word. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God, the word of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit, calculated to to regenerate people, to give them new life, and to bring them into the kingdom of God. Our weapon is the truth of God's word in the hands of the spirit of God. And our weapon, we have to say, is love. Love is our weapon. Paul says in 2 Timothy 10, 4 and 5, that our weapons are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our war- warfare is not, it primarily, it's not carnal. It is spiritual because the kingdom of Christ is not a carnal kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom entered by regeneration and conversion. It's a spiritual kingdom. One day it will be a physical, visible kingdom. When King Jesus returns and establishes a new earth. The next category, next to last, I'm calling the fearful fugitives. They come to arrest Jesus, and they all left him and fled. The flight of the disciples reveals their frailty. Now it was Peter who was the boaster in chief, right? Earlier, Peter had said, Lord, though all may, you know, leave you, I will not. I'll not abandon you, Lord. If I I have to die for you, I'm willing to do that. Peter was certainly the one who fueled the fires of self-confident bravado. But in 1431, we also read, and they all were saying the same thing also. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're like Peter. Yeah, we'll die for you, Lord Jesus. But when they saw the ominous mob and the cold steel of their swords and the hard wood of their clubs and the treacherous betrayal of one of their own, they all ran away. They fled, meaning to seek safety by flight. When it was obvious that Jesus was not going to use his power to fight, they hightailed it out of there. But whereas their flight revealed their frailty, their fleeing revealed something else the veracity or truthfulness of Jesus' words. Earlier, there in the garden, he had said in verse 27. You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Why did Jesus know that they would all fall away? Because in Zechariah thirteen seven, God revealed prophetically that this would happen, that the shepherd, he, the shepherd would be stricken and the rest would fall away. And so the boasts of the disciples fell to the ground. Oh, yeah, Lord Jesus, we'll be faithful to you unto death. Their words fell to the ground, unfulfilled. But the word of Jesus, quoting the word of God from Zechariah, proved to be true. The incarnate word, Jesus, speaking the prophetic word, was right on. Why? Because it's the word of God. And every word of God must be fulfilled because it is the very word Of God. The applications for us, first of all, as we look at the disciples, we've seen this before, we are no better than they. We are very fickle. We don't know ourselves as well as we ought to know ourselves. And we ought to have a growing self knowledge and a growing humility, realizing that apart from, as Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yes, I can do all things, but only through him who strengthens me. We don't want to have that carnal bravado and self-confidence that Peter had and the other disciples had. We want to have an accurate sense of our own frailty, our own weakness, knowing that if we do any good, if there's any courage in us, any boldness in us, it's only by the grace of God that is given to us. And then um, we want to see here that the word of God is true. Jesus said, I'm going to be uh, smitten and you're going to be scattered before it happened. Why? Because the word of God hundreds of years earlier in Zechariah said it would happen. You see, we are people of a book. We're people of special revelation. We are living our lives now and hoping for our life in the life to come all based on this book. Everything is staked on this book being the word of God. The Old Testament is the word of God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And the New Testament given through Jesus and his apostles is the word of God. We stake our lives on it. We stake our eternity on this book being true. But finally, what I'm calling the captive controller of the situation, Jesus himself. Who was really in control in the garden? First of all, I point you to the the moral control of the situation. Jesus showed his moral superiority to his captors. First of all, the boldness with which he, he agonized in the garden, but he came out victorious on the other end. Not my will, but yours be done. Get up, men. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. With noble courage, Jesus faced his captors. There's a nobility there. There's a moral superiority there. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Why was Jesus bold and courageous? Because he wasn't guilty. His moral courage was because of his moral purity. And he faced his captors with courage, with boldness. His moral purity superiority is also seen in the rebuke he gives to his captors. Verses 48 and 49, he says to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? And by the way, a robber is not a petty thief. It's an insurrectionist. We would say it's like a terrorist. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. He rebukes them. He says, if you men had a righteous cause, and if you had moral courage, you would have arrested me any when I was teaching publicly in the, in, the, in the temple. I wasn't doing this stealthily and secretly. He points out their moral cowardice by coming at night to arrest him. And we see the moral superiority of Jesus. But then we see the sovereign control of the situation that Jesus exercised. But to fulfill the scriptures... This is going to happen. I'm going to allow myself to be arrested by you because the scriptures have prophesied it. You see, the events taking place there that evening, including the betrayal and the arrest in the garden, were not happening ultimately because of the will of the Sanhedrin, the will of the soldiers, or the will of Jesus. They happened as they did because from eternity past, the Father and the Son had made a covenant that the Son would come and he would redeem a portion out of his fallen race of humanity. And that message, that gospel was progressively revealed through the scriptures, beginning with Genesis 3.15 and then going on and showing in Genesis 49, this one will be from the tribe of Judah and 2 Samuel 7 will be a descendant of David and go through the, the prophecy of Isaiah and all the the teaching about the suffering servant and and this light of gospel truth progressively unfolds through the Old Testament so that the prophets might be fulfilled. So friends, in the garden, Jesus was not taken by surprise. He was not a hapless, helpless victim of the malice and shrewdness of his enemies. He knew his hour had come and he knew it was planned from eternity past for him to submit to betrayal and arrest and ultimately to death, because it was stated in the scriptures. So of all the players on the scene in the garden that evening, with that momentous event, who was really in control? Who was really calling the shots? It wasn't the treacherous, money-loving, hypocrite Judas. It wasn't the hate-filled, diabolical Jewish leaders. It wasn't the formidable club and sword-wielding soldiers of the Jews and Romans. Who was in charge in the garden? It was the captive, the willing, lamb-like captive who was in perfect control. It is said that Jesus Christ reigned from the tree, and he reigned in the garden. He had the physical power. He says in Luke that he could have called six legions of angels. A legion is about 6,000 men, 72,000 angels. The hymn says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He shows his moral superiority, exposes that they were cowards. Their cause was unjust, but he did not use his physical power. He did not escape from the injustice being done to him. He allowed the events to unfold so that his own prophetic word might be fulfilled and his own and the father's will might be done. And what was that father's will? As he says in John 10, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And why? In the same passage, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Our Savior was not a martyr. He was not a hapless, helpless victim. He was a deliberate, intentional Savior. Such was his love for us that he willingly allowed himself to be captured in the garden, unjustly tried, tortured and crucified, suffering the wrath of God in our place, so we might know only the smile of God in this life and in the life to come. What a Savior. Let's pray and sing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that even in the garden you were in control. You were not a victim, or you were a willing victim, and you did it for our sake. You yielded your life. You laid down your life for the sheep. Thank you. Many of us, most of us here are sheep. We pray for those who are not, that they would yet become your sheep. Thank you for your sacrificing, suffering, and dying love. We pray,